hello and welcome to episode 103 of the 1099 for the week of July 31st, 2017. I am your host, Josiah Renauden, and with me today is the founder and CPO slash C3PO of Iron Galaxy Studios and a co-host of Team GFB Radio, Dave Lang. Dave, thanks so much for doing this. How are you doing today? No problemo. I'm glad to be here. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Every time I ever put out a call on Twitter for who would you like me to talk to in this podcast, I think it's because I've talked to so many giant bomb people now. I just get a medley of people saying, please like enter the Lang zone. Please contact Dave Lang in some capacity. So finally happening. <laughs> finally yeah, I- putting this together. I'm the I'm like the one of the perennial unofficial cast members of Giant Bomb. <laughs> I don't get a paycheck. I don't I don't actually get any tangible benefits from it. Uh, but I do get a lot of requests like this from time to time, so it's, it's all good. And no paycheck yet. I, I feel like that should be in the future at some point. I feel like you might. The biggest uh, closest I ever got was when Patrick was out here, and me, him, and Max would once a week stream from quote unquote Giant Bomb Chicago. Uh, it was like, you know, we'd stream Spelunky or whatever it was. And there, of course there was no giant bomb Chicago, but that was the joke. Yeah. Um, and then when Patrick quit and went to uh waypoint giant bomb Chicago was dissolved. And as a severance package, uh, Jeff gave me a Snickers bar, a king size <laughs> Snickers bar and a free max B t-shirt. So that's the closest I've ever getting. I've gotten to get receiving remuneration for my duties at Giant Bomb. That's something. I can honestly tell you that after seeing you on Giant Bomb, I bought Dive Kick. So like somehow tangentially, like you kind of got paid from it. There you go. There you go. We'll count it. Uh, I've talked to a lot of different developers on this podcast in the past, but Iron Galaxy is a bit different in that you guys, you know, you develop your own games in-house, you assist other companies and do port work, which not everyone does. When you first started the company way back in 2008, uh, which is, God, nine years ago now? Uh, what was your ideal scenario? Like, was this something that in your mind, these this is exactly what I want Iron Galaxy to be? Is that what you were building towards? Did you always hope to do development in-house? Or was that more of as the industry changed, uh, as, you know, your company changed, it just made right. sense to start doing that? No, so the the reason we started the company, you know, It'll be April or August 15th is the anniversary. So it'll be nine years in like a couple of weeks, oh, um, which is fucking insane. Yeah. So it's okay if I swear. On this oh, podcast. 100%. Okay, great. Because I swear a lot. So that's, <laughs> that's going to save you some edits because I'm not changing for anybody. So uh, <laughs> the uh, yeah. So the reason we started is I had been at a bunch of places that had closed on me really quickly or you saw it coming, but you didn't want to believe it. And the thing that there's like good and bad things to a game company closing. Um, one of the one of the worst things is like teams. If you can keep a team together, you get better over time. Yeah. Right. Like individual talent is not meaningless in game development, but it's much less important than having like a really well functioning, well oiled team. Because like game development is probably the most collaborative thing in the world. It's you know it's a mix of you got art and science and uh, just different kinds of people having to work together. And so when, it, when a company goes away, all that hard work of building that team just disappears into the ether. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the good part is all those people end up going to different companies. And so now you have friends in every company in the industry. But that's like from, from a, I want to make the best games possible perspective. That sucks, right? Yeah. So I'd been in a bunch of places like that. Some friends of mine who'd been in a bunch of places like that. And I saw it happening at Midway kind of before my eyes. So uh, 2008, I was the studio tech director at Midway Chicago, worked out a bunch of stuff, pretty much everything that came through the studio in some shape or form, you know, some teams needed less help than others. Um, and one of my duties was I worked a lot with this group called the ATG group in Chicago. Mm. And it's a room full of like 20 engineers. This is gonna be a really long answer to your question. Hope you're <laughs> it's totally this. fine. I'm ready. Like excruciatingly long. <laughs> um, and so there was, uh, you know, 20 people like in that, in that room, 20 people. And we were all like, we were in sync uh, in the ATG group. And so like, you know, we'd all kind of like, we had a lot of lofty goals for that group, like build new technology for people to build games, blah, blah, blah. But what we really ended up doing was just like jumping on the next project that was coming out the doors and help ship it. Yeah. Right. Whether it's like speeding up the frame rate, reducing memory footprint, uh, you know, working even just on like TCR bugs, like getting the profile saves correctly or whatever. Right. And I saw Midway kind of coming crumbling to an end, and I got really depressed that this team, you know, I had some part in building, uh, was just going to go away. And uh, so I'm like, it doesn't have to be like this. And so kind of started IG up, 
And the whole goal, the reason Iron Galaxy exists is I want to work with my friends for the next 30, 20 or 30 years, mm-hmm. right? I don't want to ever be at another company where we can make an awesome team. And because, like, you know, we put out a game and it doesn't do what it's supposed to do, everyone gets laid off, right? Yeah. So all of our decisions at Iron Galaxy are based around what helps us, you know, just make it like sustainability, mm-hmm. right? Reliability. Um, and because of that, we started off doing a lot of just technical consulting because we were going to be the best at doing that thing. Like we, a lot of people don't know, but Midway actually got the first PS3 Unreal 3 game out. Um, mm. Stranglehold was the very first one that ever shipped. Oh man, the Stranglehold. Imp- yeah. And that game was cool. Yeah. And, uh, the original implementation of UE3, PS3 and UE3, like left something to be desired, right? Like it was, it was pretty rough and there was a lot of things you had to do on your own to kind of make it so you could actually ship something on it. Um, and we shipped Stranglehold and then Midway started to crumble. It's like, well, shit, you know, everyone uses Unreal 3. I bet you a lot of people are going to have this problem. Why don't we just like tell people to help you ship your UE3 PS3 game? And so for the first two years, that's kind of all we did, just yeah. help people do that. And then, you know, PS3 was kind of getting more and more like easy to handle on UE3. UE3 was maturing. People just got more comfortable in that environment. So people needed help less and less for that. So we started doing ports. And we worked with Capcom and stuff like Street Fighter Three Third Strike and da 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 da. And then, you know, it's kind of looking down the road, it's like, okay, this is cool. But like uh port work is at the time we had a we have well, we still kind of have this problem, but like a lot of companies, I'm not gonna name any names on like which publishers or or whatever, but like some publishers, all they really care about is like, okay, give me the team that can do this for the cheapest possible. Yeah, as quickly right? and cheaply as possible. Yeah, there, there's, a, there's a handful of companies that care about quality over price. The majority, it's a blend, and there's some that just care about price, right? And because we were a bunch of super senior people from Midway uh, who had been in you know AAA games, quote-unquote, or whatever, some of us had families, uh, certainly a lot of experience, we ended up being a really expensive porthouse, right? And so we kind of knew we needed to grow, just hire in some like a better range of talent, get some you know some junior people, some mid range people in there, just to kind of flesh out that and drive our average cost per person down. Uh, and we wanted to work on just different things. We wanted to diversify because like uh, the I'm still going somehow. I'm gonna keep. I'm gonna keep going. <laughs> it's it's good. No, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm so ready for this. I'm still. Strapped I'm gonna in. keep going. Until you pass out. When I hear you faint, then I'm just going <laughs> to hang up on it. So, yeah. So, the I, like, I'm not Michael Pactor. I don't pretend to know, like, which direction the industry is going. I don't pretend to know what's going to happen next. And so, I because of that, I don't make bets on who's going to win the console war. Is the Vita going to be a hit? Is Connect going to be good? So, what we try to do is we try to just accrue as much experience as possible, mm-hmm. right? So, if Connect ends up being something, then we're in position to do more Connect stuff, right? And so it's about diversifying our portfolio of what we can do and what we have done, right? Yeah. Giving us as many chances, swings, swings the plate as possible. So we needed a lot more people to do, to do just take all these swings and just accrue these different experiences and talent. And it was a very paradoxical notion at the time um, because, like, you know, it's all about stability and it's all about living to fight another day. But I kind of realized, like, to, to be more stable, we needed to grow. And so this was like around 2011-ish, we realized this. And we kind of hemmed and hawed. We were about 30 people at the time, pretty much just doing ports. So we started doing some original stuff, but like just mostly ports still. Mm. And then we kind of realized, okay, we need to grow. And we opened up a studio in Orlando in 2012. And then we got serious about kind of growing and doing even more different things. Again, being diverse in what we do. We never want to be in a position where if one project goes away, I have to lay people off. And so uh, we started doing more original stuff. We did stuff like Wrecketeer, stuff like Dive Kick, uh, stuff like Killer Instinct and now Extinction. Uh, we still do the port stuff and we still do uh, like consulting. We still like just throw uh, engineers, artists, QA people on other people's projects to help them ship, right? Because yeah. like I said, I'm never going to try to guess what's going to be more successful. We just want to be diverse so we can always kind of strike in any field. And so that's kind of the the reason we do this stuff and the reason we have this blend of things it's kind of the same reason now as it was back then. Uh, it's whatever we think. It used to, be, used to be just me, but now it's me, Adam, and Chelsea. It's whatever we think puts us in the best position to live to fight another day. Did starting the company... You're still starting... awake. I'm, I'm impressed. <laughs> still here, I promise. I did not pass right. out. Uh, did starting 
Iron Galaxy with this group you already felt comfortable with, like you mentioned, kind of this friend group who knew what they were doing. Did that help make the initial I'm going to start my own company process less daunting? Because even as someone, if let's go really small scale, if I start a podcast, there's like eight levels of, all right, I got to find an audience. I got to figure out how to do this. I got to understand technology of that. I got to understand that. I would assume if you're starting a company at, at the time, it was smaller. Um, but even starting a company at all, there has to be so many processes where it becomes overwhelming. Did having all these people around you who you already worked with before and knew what they were doing, did that make the entire process easier? Uh, I mean, it made some parts easier and some parts harder because like, so when for the first like three months, it was just me and I wasn't sure. Like, I'm like, okay, I, I would love to work, work with my friends again. Right. Yeah. Like someday we're going to figure this out, but it wasn't like an immediate goal to hire everyone. Okay. Um, and when I left, it was just me. And so it was really easy. I just had to basically talk to my wife and say, Hey, listen, Midway is going down the toilet. Uh, I think like just starting my own consulting business is probably more stable than staying at Midway. Right. Yeah. Now that ended up probably not being correct because, you know, a little bit after I left WB stepped in and they bought the Chicago studio and they made it clear they want to keep the MK team around. And I would have had a home there in hindsight, but when I made this decision, it wasn't clear at all. Right. Mm -hmm. That like what was going to happen. And so for me, it was easy. And the cool thing about hiring all these super experienced people that I know and love and they're my friends and I know what they're capable of doing work wise is I don't got to worry about the work. Right. Yeah. Like we're working on this game. I know if Daryl says he's going to knock out thing X, it's done. If Mike says he's going to do thing Y, if Nate Coleman, you know, Campin, uh, anybody, right. Like Kaiser, whoever it is in the, in the original group, mm. um, the it's going to get done. And so that part's super easy, but what got harder is now there's this intense pressure to make it actually like a good business because I couldn't imagine a worse thing than like telling my best friends that like, Oh no, you're not going to get paid this week or whatever. Right. Uh, so that, cause like, you know, I knew my own financial situation and I was comfortable with whatever risk I was taking. And my wife was comfortable with whatever risk we were taking. Uh, but it's just a different level of accountability there. And uh, yeah, that was the hardest part for sure. And that's also why it took so long for us to keep growing because like when you start a company, it's weird. And I think it took about six years for me to get over this. Uh, I'm finally over it, but it's like, you know, you start a company, you hire some people. It's like, okay, I need to come up with $18,000 next month to pay my team. Oh geez. Yeah. It's like, it's like, Oh shit. I'm not going to get $18,000 <laughs> from, you know, and you, then you figure it out. And you get eighteen thousand dollars. Yeah. And you hire a few more people over the next year or whatever. And now it's like shit, I need fifty thousand dollars next month to pay my team. It's like, ugh, that's a lot of money. Oh my god. And then every time you do that, it goes from fifty to a hundred, from one hundred to five hundred, from five hundred to now we're like one point three million or whatever to keep the team going every month, right? Yeah. And it's just like it never isn't terrifying to make that number bigger. Right? Yeah, because you you'd worry, I would assume, at this point that any misses, any like just misfires on projects or something like shit where's that where's that million coming from yeah i mean it's like the, the the nature of it is such that um you know because like the design of the company allows us to be more tolerant to stuff like that than other companies mm. you know like like i think right now we're about 140 people across the two studios and i think most 140 person companies are working on one or maybe two games at once right yeah and if any company loses like half their revenue overnight because the project gets canceled, maybe even through no fault of their own, whatever, uh, they don't have a lot of choices but to lay people off, yep. right? Whereas us, if we lose one of our 10 projects, like we can kind of absorb that bump gracefully and just kind of keep going and figure out what to do. But so, so it's still a problem though, and it's still not terrifying. So as you're making that number bigger and bigger and bigger, like uh, it's still always, always scary. And then about six years ago, I got over it and it's kind of like, you know, we have a process here for acquiring new business. We have a process here for making sure we pay people on time. Uh, we have a process that has worked for us by and large for the last, you know, six years. Uh, why don't I just trust the process and do what I think is smartest for the business? Yeah. Um, it's like this story. I, this might be apocryphal, but someone uh, I work with, Nate tells a story about so Chicago has a board of trade, right? It's one of the biggest board of trades and stock market things um, in the country. Mm. And there's a lot of firms that hire like, you know, okay. It's like being like a junior person on the floor is like the most cutthroat thing there is. He's got a story of like one of the, one of the companies, what they do with all their junior first time clerks 
is they make them play every single week. Uh, now this, again, might be apocryphal, but I think it illustrates the point regardless. Yeah. They make them put their whole paycheck into a game of poker against all the other junior people. <laughs> right? Yeah. And, and what they're trying to teach you there is you can't – you have to do the smart percentage play no matter what. Right? Like, and wow, I have to – This the percentages are I should go all in on this hand. Mm. Right? And uh, it's very – it's when you're actually betting your whole paycheck or whatever – it's scary to do that, but it still doesn't make it the right thing to do if you're already in the game, yeah. right? And so that's what they're trying to teach you to do. And I think that's where we are now with this sort of thing. You know, it's it's not a gambling analogy, but it's more like, no, it's like, okay, we have to trust that doing the right thing will get us down the path and get us the result we want. And so it's a lot less scary now, but yeah, at the beginning it was terrifying. And maybe it's a silly question, but do you want to expand to be much bigger than what you are now? Because I feel like everyone's always like, you know, bigger and better and keep moving forward. But if you're kind of rolling with this 140-person studio, would you want to manage something that's two to 300 employees? Is that too much to do what you want to do, or is that the goal to just keep going? No, again, like our only goal is to be in business for the next 20 to 30 years. Okay. You know, and so we'll do anything that we think is smart that furthers that goal, right? Yeah. Like if we, if someone comes to us and says, okay, here's a new game we think you, y'all can make for us. And it's going to take 50 people to do it, right? And we need you to start right away. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, it really comes down to, does this bring uh, talent to the studio we don't currently have? Do I think that talent we would acquire is really valuable going forward? Uh, do we think we could find work for that team in the event this project finishes and there's not another one just like it? And does this give us, you know, is the, is the net net of those things worth the risk of growing by another 10, 50, a hundred people, whatever the number is. Right. Mm. And that's the calculus we, we take to the, that question. And if the answer is yes, this makes us more sustainable in the long run, this gives us, you know, this 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 helps our uh, repeatability and reliability as a company. Then we do it. Um, so, you know, it doesn't matter what the number is, so long as it, it increases the chance that we'll be around longer. Did you have a massive list of names for the company before you started it? And was Iron Galaxy your first choice? Was there a lot no. you started to look into, and you're like, "Oh, trademarks already taken." This is awful. So this is a really bad. Oh, story. I'm so ready for this. It's like bad. It, this is not one that time has been kind to. <laughs> time and time is time has not treated this story kindly. But here we go. <laughs> so, at midway, um, I like I said, I worked with most of these the, the people that are here in the beginning at midway, and we worked on Blitz the League. Blitz the League was the first game we all worked on together okay. for the most part, and I was the uh, lead programmer on that. And we'd. You know, as part of a lead programmer schedule, you shouldn't be programming too much. You should be just making sure everyone is working on the right stuff on your team, collaborating with the other disciplines to make sure, you know, you're, this game's going to get done on time and at quality, right? Mm-hmm. And I didn't like doing that stuff. I like programming. And so I would spend too much time programming and not enough time doing that. And because of that, like, stuff would fall between the cracks sometimes. And I'd be in the meeting with, like, the other leads, and the design lead would be like, Oh, my God, Dave! I heard you guys haven't started uh, like the physics cloth yet, the cloth physics yet for the uniforms. <laughs> and I'd be like, oh, shit. In my head, I'm like, you're 100% right. We haven't started that. I have no idea how we're going to get that done. I need to buy some time. So what I would say, almost inexorably, in any situation like that, I'd say, don't worry, top men are on it. <laughs> oh, okay. And, then, and all the leads were like, oh, thank God. I don't believe I ever doubted you. That's that's great. Top men are on it. Great. We don't got to worry about it. And then that gave me time to go back to the team and figure it out. And so whenever I booked a team meeting for the programmers and I said, hey, we got another top men situation, they knew that we <laughs> they knew what that really meant. And so we're there. And so the original vision of the company, again, we knew we were going to start doing consulting stuff, right? Mm-hmm. We're going to get dropped into games that aren't ready, aren't finished, aren't done. Um, and uh, so the original version of the company was going to just be called Top Men. Oh, right? wow. That could have been amazing. Yeah. Well, I, you know, but now it's like looking back at it, it's like, just like, yeah, well, it's like, you know, what pretty much would mean I could never probably hire a woman because no woman would <laughs> yeah. ever apply. Right. Like, yeah, that doesn't it, work. In hindsight, it's a completely stupid name for a lot of reasons. But the reason we ended up not using it isn't for any enlightened reason like that, because that back then I was an idiot chucklehead. Mm. Uh, the reason we didn't use it is because I started looking for URLs. <laughs> and for some reason, every variant on top men, whatever 
It is a gay amateur <laughs> porn site based in the UK. I don't know why it's all three of those things, but it's all three of those things. Topmen.co.uk. Yeah, it's all they're in the UK. They're all amateur and they're all gay. And so I'm like, man, I can't do that. Like, what if someone just like types in the wrong URL? Like, this is like, even if I found one that was cool, like, you know, like, I'm just going to steer clear of this. Like, I don't want any, you know, marketplace confusion or whatever. Oh, that's incredible. And I I figured this out like minutes before I was going to my lawyer's office to incorporate the company. And, uh, wait, minutes before? As in this almost happened? Yeah, this almost happened. And so I'm like, you know, I'm like, the meeting I think was like he was like a half hour away, and the the meeting was like in, in like two hours, and so I sat down. I'm like, you know, let me just do a little legwork on this and make sure there's a URL out there, right? Because um, remember, this is like 2008, yeah. Where like we're so right now, literally every URL is taken. Mm-hmm. Uh, back then, just most were taken, but I had reasonable hopes I could find something. But then all these other things, like, oh, okay, I can't do this. I should have done this sooner. So I'm driving to the lawyer's office and. Uh, I'm like, huh, I need a new name. And I'm trying to think of things and I've got nothing. So I pull in the lawyer's office and I'm like, okay, I need to find something that is like not probably trademarked and probably not URL'd. And so I started scrolling through my iPod looking at song names and uh, I listened to tons of rap music. And the first one I saw was this uh, song by Eric B and Rakim called Radiant Energy. Mm-hmm. And no, sure enough, that was like a like an energy company in Georgia, like a power company. <laughs> Fuck, that was a cool name. Too bad. I see Iron Galaxy. I'm like, there's no fucking way that's taken. Uh, and so jumped in, and then Iron Galaxy was born. That's a that's a good third choice. I don't know, it wasn't your actual third choice, but that you know, top men that might Iron Galaxy might be better. The, oh no, it's much better. Yeah, it's like well, the the thing about names, it's just like naming your kid. Like, so I've got mm. three kids, and every parent I bet will tell you the same thing. Like, you agonize over what the name of the kids are going to be before the kid's born. But then the minute the kid's born, it doesn't fucking matter anymore. Yep. It's like, no, yeah, of course, your name is Sydney. Yeah, duh. <laughs> like, like you know, this thing, it feels like a blood feud between you and your wife. It just evaporates when you actually have actual problems to worry about. Right? Yeah, by and, the end, no one really cares what the name. Yeah, oh, and the company sure. is like, company is the exact same way. We could have named it like, you know, uh, like, you know, whatever, like the Railroad Express. <laughs> and it would, we'd be in exactly the same position. It yeah, wouldn't giant or bomb. You could have right, pretty correct. much named it anything. Just say uh, hypothetically. Hypothetically. So you were mentioning before that some unnamed publishers um, sometimes try to do things as cheaply and quickly as possible with PC ports. Uh, when it actually comes to specifications for different games you're working on, um, you guys ported Borderlands 2 to PS4 and Xbox One. Uh, is that like an agreement you have to come to with the publisher where you have this idea of what a PC port should look like or a PS4 port should look like in your mind and they have it and you have to compromise? Like, Does Iron Galaxy kind of have guidelines for if we're porting this game uh, any type of game to pc it needs to have this 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 and this otherwise it's a bad pc port is that a conversation or is that something you kind of have in-house in terms of certain rules no it's it's always uh it's usually driven by the publisher okay um and so it doesn't matter if it's pc or if it's console or if it's mobile or whatever because we like we do ports pretty much from every platform to every platform and uh, what really the conversation starts with like the publisher. This, okay, first they determine I want to do game X, right? And it's on the 360, and I want to bring it to the PS4 or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. And then they'll do some internal math, and they're like, okay, we've done other things like this, and they cost about this much money, and they took about this much time, right? Yeah. There's some things unique to this game that we need to consider, but whatever. Those are general. That's what we're expecting. Then they'll then they'll talk to like a bunch of different developers, you know, maybe as many as like five, but certainly like you know between two or three for sure. They'll say, hey, are you have any interest in availability to do like, you know, Borderlands two for the PS4 and the three and the Xbox One or whatever, which we did, and uh, that was a really easy conversation because we already done Borderlands two for the Vita at that point, so we knew the code really well. So for us to figure out like the work involved in that was pretty trivial because we knew the code really well already. We knew the complexities of the game. And so we can make a really accurate bid based on their specs. Like, you know, we're talking Randy and the team at Gearbox. Like, we know we want to do a four-player split screen. And we know we want to do this and we want to do this. And it's like, okay, so we just incorporate that into estimates. Where it gets harder is if it's a code base you've never seen before or a platform you've never worked on before. Yeah. Uh, like, we're porting something to the Switch now uh, that was on an engine we've never seen before and trying to guess – uh, just based on experience, essentially, and, and asking the right questions of the publisher about the game, 
like how long that's going to take and how much money it'll take is very hard. And those kind of things can either make or break a project, right? Um, yeah. Now, luckily, we've done, I don't know, we've probably done like, I'd say at least 20 ports. It's probably less than 30 at this point. But we've done a lot of these things. So we have a lot of experience to fall back on ourselves, you know? And so we generally bid them correctly. Um, but then it's up for the publisher to look at all the bids and just based on their own risk profile, uh, how much they, you know, desire, you know, guaranteed profitability over quality or vice versa, just to pick the developer that fits the best shoe for them. And either you get it or you don't at that point. But generally all that stuff, like, you know, if you're doing a PC version, like, are we going to put mouse and keyboard controls in it? Are we going to do a separate, like advanced video options menu? Mm -hmm. Uh, all that stuff will be kind of hammered out at that point before you even start on it. So everyone agrees on it. We're building this thing. Here's what's in it. And, you know, it's game development, so stuff changes all the time. But you have a snapshot at the beginning of the project you've agreed to, and you kind of base everything off of that. Are most publishers kind of hands-off once they give you this project? Are they – is it like a weekly stand-up meeting where it's like, how's this going? How's that going? Or do they kind of give you the code, give you what they want with it, and let you go for, you know, weeks or months at a time? Every publisher is really different. Uh, it's like – it's really hard to explain, like – the ways they are different and the things that make them unique. But it, 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 it comes down to just one, what their natural bias is and two, how much do they trust you? Yeah. Like, you know, we've been working with uh, like Bethesda, right. For geez, like six years now. Mm. Right. And we've done a lot of cool projects with them. Like we did elder scrolls online for the consoles working with, you know, the team back at Zoss. Right. And yeah. we've done this thing and this thing and this thing. And now they pretty much like, just like, okay, tell us when it's done. You know, yeah. we know here's the money. Just tell us when the game's done. We know it's going to rule. But, and all the way down to like, we have uh, some of the publishers want to do like, you know, daily meetings sometimes just to get status updates and make sure everything's going as they want it to go or whatever. Right. And so it, it can be the whole gamut. And it really just depends on like what their natural kind of inclination is. Uh, how many times they've been abused before by other developers yeah. and uh, what your relationship with them is like. Do you ever get the itch to kind of go in there and help with a lot of the stuff? Cause I'm, I assume as, as like a founder of this company, like you, we, we were talking off air, you're traveling all the time. You're taking meetings, you're setting, you know, different, uh, your team up for different projects and stuff like that in the future. But do you ever kind of get that itch to go actually, you know, back in the trenches and do some of this development work yourself? Or do you prefer the current role? I used to get it uh, a lot, but it's really counterproductive is what I've learned over time. Like the, the really, the clean, like the company got really good when, so, okay. Another rolling back the time thing. So I hired Chelsea, who is now our chief product officer and a partner in the company um, way back in 2010. So like, you know, a little over like a year and a half into us being in business. And uh, she was just like an assistant producer essentially. Right. She's kind of like doing all this stuff. And as uh, I, you know, we learned each other more and more, I learned Chelsea's capable of doing so much more. And pretty soon I stopped running projects and I just focused on the business stuff and I let Chelsea do all the product development stuff. So Chelsea runs all the teams. She runs all the schedules. Uh, she's kind of the last person that has the last say on quality of stuff. And so the, the game kind of begins and ends with her and I just handle the business stuff. Right. And so this is before Adam jumped in. But there was sometimes uh, what I would do is like I would just think I was helping, right? Yeah. And I would hear some people talking about a problem because uh, we have an open floor plan and I just sit out on the floor with everybody else. And so I'd hear someone talking about something that I knew something about and I would inject myself into it. And if it's like – if it's one of the people who know me going all the way back to 20, 2003 at Midway or even longer in some cases, right? Like mm -hmm. they just take that as a data point and they move on. But junior people or people who don't know me as well are like, oh, shit the CEO of the company just told me to do it this way. And they would drop everything because they thought I was giving them, I wasn't just giving them feedback or a direction or something to think about. It, they would just instinctively like over index on that feedback. Right. And then Chelsea, that would fuck up her plans. Cause she's like, no, they like, that's, you know, for whatever reason, now you slowed that down two days and someone was waiting on that now. And you got this huge dependency chain that you just fucked up just by saying you think it's better to be done this way or whatever. And so, Despite my best intention of trying to help uh, production, the all I would inevitably do is just slow things down and fuck them up. And so the way I end up doing it now 
is I just uh, test games essentially. Mm-hmm. Like if I if I don't have a lot of business stuff going on, like right now I've tried to play Extinction every single day, right? Yeah. And then I only give my feedback to the like the project director, right? Because the project director is someone who's super senior. They report to Chelsea, not me. They understand that, and they get how to strike a balance between like, okay, if Dave's got a problem with this thing, I should at least consider that this is legitimate feedback and I should consider it. And they might ultimately decide not to act on it. Right. Yeah. Uh, but maybe they do, maybe they don't, but they don't, they do it by working through Chelsea and how to get that stuff done. Right. And so that's the way I best help now. So I don't get involved in implementation anymore. I don't get involved in like play tests anymore. I'm just kind of like the most expensive QA person in the world. <laughs> is it, difficult to let's say you're playing extinction like you mentioned before is it difficult to kind of take a bird's eye view of a game like that uh something you're so invested in something that you've seen kind of come from the ground up and give your i don't know if it's fully honest but give maybe a really helpful opinion on a game that you're working on i know um i work for tan gentlemen who released here they lie last year and i remember you know, playing that over and over and over. And even as I used to review games for GameSpot and IGN all the time, I couldn't really get a good handle on what the, you know, what the Metacritic would be, what people outside of the studio would think about it. Have you done this long enough where you're kind of able to remove the the Iron Galaxy, Dave Lang, and just play a game and have a good idea of, all right, this needs tweaked, this needs tweaked, and this is why I think people are going to think about it? Well, there, I mean, there's there's two kind of parts to that. And one is something I think most people just don't understand about game development is like like all games suck for the vast majority of development right Mm -hmm. it's just it's just the it's the way it has to be and then if you get really lucky you get a game that stops sucking uh with more time left than not you know and so then now it just doesn't suck and now you can try to make it okay and then it's it kind of just sucks until it's okay and then you hope you have enough time left to make it good. And then if you have enough time left to make it good, you make it good. And you just keep working as hard as you can, as fast as you can, because you you, you don't get more time. You know, you don't get more money under most circumstances. And so, but there's sometimes the game just, it, sometimes it fights you and sometimes it doesn't, right? Yeah. And uh, because of that, and I've worked on so many games, I've been working on games professionally since 95 and personally since a lot longer than that. Um, I know this very well. And so you can still give feedback on games that suck, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, you can still like, kind of like put it through your prediction engine in your head and say, okay, this is going to be a problem down the future, or this feels like an easy win now just to make the game immediately like 10% better or whatever. Right. Yeah. And so you're not really thinking about, um, the user score or what are people going to like, you're just trying to make these in the moment triage decisions, on what's going to be the biggest bang for buck on making it better right now. Right. The other thing that I think is probably, um, I think everyone probably understands is because I don't work on it. I haven't worked on it. Like the team on extinction has been on it for over a year at this point. Mm-hmm. And while I'm, you know, I'm familiar, I play milestone builds and I know what they're doing with the game. I'm not invested in any of the decisions that have been made. I'm not invested in any tough choices the team has had to make. And I have a fresh eyes on the game. Right. Yeah. And so when I play it, I have I have closer to consumer experience than, you know, anyone on the team does, that's for sure. And so it makes it really easy to give feedback because I'm not invested in the reasons why the game is what it is today. And so I think it's definitely good uh, for me to be that way and kind of like stay out of the production stuff. It's like another reason it's good. Uh, you mentioned not really worrying about scores and stuff like that, uh, but how you, much... You can't worry about scores. Scores are... The score is going to be what it's going to be. All, all you can worry about is do I did I do the best job possible with the time and resources I had available? How much do you look at trends when you're concepting a game? Again, let's say like Extinction, where right now the Battlegrounds is the most popular shit in the world, where everyone, I feel like everyone on podcasts is like, when's going to be the next Battle Royale, Call of Duty mode, or Battlefield mode? Do you think it can actually be more harmful than helpful to project uh, what might the next big thing be or try to grab, you know, if someone caught lightning in a bottle, try to recreate that. Do you think that's actually more harmful to game development? Um, It's tricky. Like every game needs a business reason to exist. Yes. Right. Like a game has to be built 
on some belief from someone that this thing can make us money, mm-hmm. right? Otherwise, you're not going to get like Maximum Games gave us a fair amount of money to make Extinction, right? And they did so based on the belief that it will make them money in the long run, right? Mm-hmm. Now, given that, you can't really say it's not intellectually honest to say, oh no, it's better to ignore stuff like Battlefields, right? Yeah. Uh, because that's silly. Because every game, you can learn lessons from every single game about what people like about it. And you should think about, okay, is there anything people like in Battlegrounds or whatever is popular today, tomorrow, or the next month? Is there anything from there I can incorporate into Extinction in a way that makes sense? And most of the time, the answer is no, right? Yeah. Like, it doesn't, they're just very different animals, and there's not something we could take from this game to make our game better. But you should have that, you should be able to have that, those thoughts freely. And if it's something that is going to strengthen the economic case for your game and you think it makes the game better, like there's no reason to kind of ignore that trend. But uh, most time it ends up being like square peg round hole stuff or stuff that's already in development. In that same vein, do you ever think about is this game going to be streamable or will we be able to get the major YouTubers with 5 million subscribers to actually play this game? Do you think, again, in a similar way, if you focus on making something that people want to actually put on Twitch, that might hurt the game development? Or do you think you have to think about that if you want you know people to start sharing it all over the place? Well, you have to think about it and you have to think about it before you start making the game. Gotcha. Right? Like, it's it's not... Like, again, there are games... Now there's some there's some independent developers that make games just for the sake of games, and they're actually making art, right? Yeah. Like, um, I, re- I used to read this uh, literary journal called Plowshares, and I really liked. They had a definition of art I really liked, and it was essentially like, I, I don't remember a quote for quote here, but it's essentially like, art exists for art's sake, and it, 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 the main part. Oh, here's what it is: it's the main purpose of art is to enlighten, not entertain. Yeah. Right. I think it's like the plowshares definition. And that one always struck with me, right? And by that definition, I've kind of always held the apocryphal belief by most people's standards that most games aren't art, you Mm -hmm. know, because they're here to make money. And if they happen to enlighten along the way, great, right? But they exist exist as a thing to make money. And uh, by that definition, no game we've ever made is art, right? And I'm comfortable with that. So yeah, so you need to think about all these things. You need to think about them. But once you start making the game, you need to listen to the game because like making a game is an interactive process. It's not just like, Oh, here's a design doc. We're going to make it because like one thing I like to tell young designers is like, okay, you've seen Tetris, right? Everyone's seen Tetris. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to pitch you Tetris. All right. So check this out. So there's, there's these shapes made of, there's four shapes made of four square blocks and there's like one long one, that's like, you know, it's the long skinny one. There's one that's like a letter S. There's one that's just a big square. And there's one that's like a letter L, right? And they're going to drop from the top of the screen. And you can rotate them around in, into this channel. And then you can just put them on the bottom of the screen. They stack up on top of each other. And if you ever make a whole row solid, that row disappears. Okay? <laughs> yes. And then the blocks keep falling. They keep falling. And if they ever get to the top, the game's over. Well, that sounds like the worst fucking game I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> and no one would give you money to make that game, right? Yeah. But it's one of the best games of all time, right? And likewise, someone could come to you with an idea that sounds great. Like, oh, I want to make, like, you know, whatever. I want to make um, this this sim where, like, you'll be able to go in this medieval town and you'll be, be, be able to do anything from, like, being a blacksmith all the way up to being the king. You'll be able to assume any of these roles, and you'll be able to live the life or whatever it is, right? And that might sound awesome, but you might start making it and realize, no, it's really fucking boring to be a blacksmith. Like, <laughs> this just isn't fun. And this is the part where you need to listen to the game. Like, the game will tell you what it needs to be. Uh, the game will tell you what what you can do to make it more fun. You just need to put your ego aside about what you wanted the game to be. You need to listen to the game and make it that. And that's something a lot of people struggle with. And it's very natural, right? Uh, but it's it, that's like one of the hardest problems in game development. When you're pitching something like Extinction, uh, is is mentioning the, the leaderboards and the online aspect of it really important to publishers in that way? Were you talking about, you know, of course, publishers, are they're investing in it. They want to make money. You need to pitch something that makes sense. Uh traditional single player game especially if they're sixty dollars harder a bit of a harder sell for a publisher like not as many people are getting 
you know, invested in those. So for you, when you're pitching Extinction, for me, it sounds like a smart aspect of the game where there are these leaderboards. You're trying to take down these giants faster than other people, different scenarios like that. Um, but is that something you keep in mind when you're pitching a game of like, we need to understand the industry. We need to understand that you can't just create a single player game without some sort of online hook that will make people want to keep the game around for either maybe DLC in the future, maybe in-game purchases and just keep the game and not immediately sell right. it off. Yeah. I mean, so yeah, in summary, yes. Right. But it's not necessarily like leaderboards. What you're always trying to do is like game development for the most part, it's like a zero sum thing, right? Like, you know, when you start a game, like, like when you're starting something like Killer Instinct season two or three yeah. or Dive Kick or Wrecketeer or Extinction or whatever it is, you generally know ahead of time, okay, I have X dollars to make this thing, right? Mm -hmm. And with those X dollars, what is the most compelling package I can possibly make, right? Yeah. Because maybe the game, the most compelling package, it, if the budget's half of what it is, it doesn't have leaderboards because leaderboards just, if I had leaderboards, I have to cut something much cooler than leaderboards because leaderboards cost Y dollars or whatever, right? Maybe if the game is twice as much budget, you don't have leaderboards either because you did something much cooler than leaderboards because you had more budget. And so there's no like one feature or one kind of got you that a publisher is looking for. But what they're what everyone is looking for is like, okay, with the money you have, are you pitching something that's like holistic and smart? Right. Yeah. Are you pitching something that is compelling and like there's not like, oh wow, yeah, they're really betting on this one feature to be cool or whatever, right? So uh it's more of like a again, it's like a budgeting process than it is like, okay, we need to have leaderboards in this. Do publishers ever suggest stuff back to you while you're pitching that's very based on current trends, similar to, again, maybe you go into a publisher meeting tomorrow and you have a shooter in mind. They're like, hey, we heard about that Battlegrounds. What if we make this more like Battlegrounds? Do you ever get feedback like that or are they mostly there to listen? No, I mean, they, yeah, they know, publishers know what they want and they know uh, what they don't like and they know what games they think they can sell. Um, like if you go to Paradox and you try to pitch them a first-person shooter, they're probably going to pass, right? Yeah. But if you pitch them this really tactical, turn-based, well-thought-out, deep strategy game, they're also going to have a lot of feedback on how to make that great, right? Like publishers know what they're good and they're bad at, and they know what they can sell and what they can't sell, and they know what their audience likes probably better than you do, you know? Again, because mm -hmm. it's like it's not just, you know, the, the game has to be great and the game has to be cool, but it also has to be the right game for the right publisher and the right audience. And uh, so we, you definitely listen to publisher for their feedback and that sort of stuff. And they provide it. And, you know, some stuff, it's like, if this doesn't have this thing, we don't want it. And then you figure out, like, is that, okay, is that something we want to do? And could we figure out a way to make that work? If the answer is yes, great. And if it's no, then you just walk away. Yeah, and we talked off air a bit about how Killer Instinct was probably the biggest thing you've worked on and oh, you've done sure. yeah. great work on it but that's an established property that you picked up it was on season two you first picked that up correct correct yeah uh before that it was you know you think about dive kick you think about Reketeer, kind of these smaller scale games and now with extinction when did you kind of feel like i am comfortable enough to create a big budget 60 dollar game that is starting from scratch in terms of being a property. This isn't already something that's established. This isn't a $15 thing. This is a big game that we're starting. Uh, no one knows this name yet. How much time did you spend thinking about this before you pulled the trigger? So, yeah. So when you're running a studio, you've got a lot of problems to solve. And the first problem we have at Iron... The first one we always care about at Iron Galaxy, it's, okay, uh, does every employee have something cool and meaningful to do today? Okay. Right? Uh, are they going to be engaged by their work is it on a cool project? Uh, you know, it's never, we don't want a, someone who's been like making uh, like shoes in a sports game for three years straight. And that's all they're doing is modeling shoes. Like we don't want that at our studio. Yeah. Um, but like the, so towards that end, it's like, we know what our composition is going to be in six months. We know in six months, okay, we're going to have like 20 engineers free and no one else. Okay, so I need to start looking for a port for those engineers to do because you need port, you need engineers for a port. You don't really need artists. You don't really need designers. You don't really need sound people. You know, but likewise, it's like you also know in six months, oh, I'm going to have some designers free and some artists free and some programmers free. Okay, well, I need to find a creative game to do, right? Mm -hmm. And so then uh, you know what you need to go find at that point. And so it kind of shortens your list of like who you're talking to and what you're talking to them about. And so it's uh, it's, it's a function of are we ready to do it? Are these people ready to do it? 
Uh, but it's it's all kind of started with like, okay, here's what we need just to you know live to fight another day. We need to find these people a home. And then, okay, given that, what do we want to do? And is it a good fit? And for Extinction, you know, with the team we had around, uh, I knew they would crush it, right? So yeah. that, they just kind of made it super easy choice at the end of the day. I guess something I've always wondered is, like, let's say, again, you announce Extinction. That's uh, coming out. It's early 2018, right? Yeah, Maximum Games has announced just early 2018 at this point. Have you ever been in a situation where you announce a game or you're about to announce a game and another publisher announces something extremely similar that might contradict not just with like the release but maybe the style or the the scope of what you're doing it happens every yeah it happens every game how do you avoid i mean i guess have a super creative idea a creative idea is one way to avoid that but how do you avoid that how do you prepare for something like that i mean you don't try to avoid it right okay you like 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 this is like uh so adam boys joined us from playstation and he's ceo now and he does a lot of similar job to me where chelsea still runs production Adam runs operational stuff, a lot of it, and still does business development like me. And one of the things I had to, like when you're doing business development, like, you know, you're pitching a lot of games, you're talking about a lot of ideas, and 95 to 99% of the time you're getting told, no, we don't want you to do this thing. You get Mm -hmm. told no a lot, right? And uh, Adam, when he first started here, obviously he's got tons of experience, he ran his own business before, but he didn't really have, he didn't really have like, at this scale of like a developer and he, he, for a little bit, he was hung up on like, Oh, we lost this game to developer X or whatever. Yeah. Right. And I just had to explain to him, like, listen, I don't, we're, we're golfing out here. (laughs) Right. We're not, we're not competing against other developers. We're not competing against other publishers. We're trying to do the best job we can with what is in front of us. Yeah. Right. We're competing against ourselves to be better than we were yesterday. And that's all we're doing. And uh, once you start thinking about that, you don't care that you lost, you know, game X to developer Y because you never it was never yours to begin with, right? Mm. Um, and you just have faith you'll get to take a swing at it. And so you don't worry about like, is another developer going to do something similar to Dive Kick, or is someone going to do another fighting game on the Xbox One that's going to compete with Killer Instinct, or is there going to be an Extinction, something similar to Extinction that's going to get announced tomorrow? We just have to be convinced that we're doing the best job on Extinction or Killer Instinct or Dive Kick that we could possibly be doing because that's all you can control. Right. Yeah. Um, and if you can go to bed every night and conv- and tell yourself that, and you believe it, uh, you'll sleep just fine. You know? Uh, and you just gave me a great uh, elevator pitch for Tetris earlier. What was your actual kind of elevator pitch for extinction when you were talking to publishers? So extinction is interesting. So, uh, actually maximum games came to us with the idea. Oh, so, okay. There's like, there's a, I think, I forget what his actual title is, but he's, he's either like, I don't, I'm going to blow his title, but he's, <laughs> maybe, maybe it's director of production. I'm not exactly sure, but Derek Neal is the guy that works at Maximum Games. So he was our original producer at Capcom when we started doing Third Strike and stuff like that. And so mm-hmm. he worked at Capcom. We worked with Derek on four games at Capcom and he loved working with us and we loved working with him. And then we stopped doing Capcom stuff for a bunch of reasons unrelated to that relationship and uh, he eventually kind of was like, yeah, hey, a couple of years later, he's like, I want to get out of Capcom and I would love to come work at IG. And so he actually came and worked for us for a couple of years. And uh, he worked out of Orlando studio. And then he had some personal things where he had, had to get back to California, right? Mm-hmm. As much as he liked IG and we liked working with him, he couldn't stick around. And so he ended up at Maximum Games. And he's like, hey, I got this game I've always wanted to make, you know, and it's Extinction. And I know Iron Galaxy is a developer that can do it because one, I know what they can do. I work there Two, I know if they say they'll do it, they'll crush it. And so he came to us and said, Hey, here's a core of an idea. And it was basically, you know, like uh, one tiny hero taking on these, you know, 150 foot ogres trying to save towns from being demolished and save as many uh, townsfolk in the process as possible. Like, do you want to do that? And then from that core idea, we worked with Derek and the team at Maximum to flesh out further and then we agreed on like, okay, this is the game we're going to build. Right. And then everyone just kind of said, yeah. And we got started. So, uh, that's pretty rare. Normally you don't get like, uh, that clean a shot at doing something original. Uh, yeah. normally you're competing with other developers for it or you're pitching something like we pitch original ideas. We have all the time to people. Right. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's just a matter of like, okay, do they believe we can do it? Are they looking for a game like that? Uh, so extinctions are very rare or a rare instance, I should say. Uh, but yeah, that's how that came to be. 
how rare is it for someone from the publisher to pitch something to the developer and the developer make it? Like, is that something that happens very often? I would assume oh, it's that, usually... No, that happens all the time. Really? Like, yeah, that's that's like, those games are far more common than a developer brings a game to a publisher and it gets signed. So there's actually a process for this. So it's called, uh, so the acronym is RFP, and it's Request for Proposal. Okay. And so a publisher will send out an RFP to, you know, a handful of developers they think could do it. And it might be like, okay, what we want is we want, let's think of a, so say we were putting an RFP out for a game. We don't, we want a dive kick two to exist. We don't have a way to make dive kick two exist right now. So we want a developer to do dive kick two. Here's what we know. We want it to still be two buttons. Uh, we want it to still be a fighting game. Uh, we know we want dive kick and Mr. N in the game for sure. Uh, now pitch us uh, what else you would do with the game to, for dive kick two. Give us a budget you need to make that happen and a timeline. And, like, tell us about the team that's going to do it. What is their experience that makes us believe they could do that, right? And then we would get all the proposals back from that RFP, and we would sort through them and keep talking to the developers about it until we found one that we thought was a good fit, that we'd go forward with that. And uh-huh. that's how the vast majority of games get done. Man, I had I usually thought it would be developer pitches to publisher. Publisher kind of gives input based on that, and it goes from there. I had no idea. So one of your studios, we talked a lot about the Orlando studio, but you're currently in Chicago. Uh, Adam's in Chicago a lot, you know, entire studio in Chicago. Uh, development, video game development is so global at this point where you don't often think about where the game come, comes from, whether it be what country or even what state. Uh, but I do often hear about the Chicago game development scene. In your mind, do you feel like the... Do you feel like the people who make games in Chicago have a certain style or mentality that shapes what types of games they make and what types of games come out of there? Do you think where your studio is located, there's a certain flavor that you normally see out of California games, Chicago games, or anything like that? Um, it's tricky. I mean, for the most part, I think the answer is no. Okay. Uh, and I think I think most people in Chicago disagree with me. Um, but... Like, I think for the most part, the answer is no. It's just once you get to a certain size, you're going to have some stuff. There are some exceptions, right? Like, because a lot of people that are still in Chicago started at Midway, there's some Midway DNA that flows through every single thing we do, you know? Yeah. Like, there's no doubt that, like, part of our love for fighting games is we had people that some way were involved in Mortal Kombat, right? Uh, there's no way that our obsession with 60 frames a second games is because... Like, I worked on Blitz and a bunch of sports games that had to run at 60 frames a second all the time and fighting game stuff, right? Mm-hmm. So there's some elements from the history of that that weaves its way into everything we do. But I don't think there's, like, I don't think this is true for any town, frankly, where there's, like, this overwhelming, like, you can look at a game and say, yep, that was made in New York City. <laughs> like, I just don't think that's, I think I think that's a very romantic notion that people want to be true. I think people with a lot of civic pride, more civic pride than me, <laughs> uh, <laughs> like want want that notion to exist, but I just don't believe in it or see it. Yeah, I feel like it is something I see. Like Send your on... hate mail to uh, at Joseph J. Brony on Twitter. <laughs> oh, I feel like it's something you see on Twitter a lot where you see people talking about like, oh, this game came out of this, this game came out of that. But in most cases, I, I feel like you're probably right where it's it's not really the case with like certain cities have certain types of games, certain styles, certain uh, you know, methodologies with that kind of stuff. Initially, when I started this podcast as an advice show, uh, a lot of people would ask me like, hey, what's the perfect degree if you want to get into games media? What's the perfect degree if you want to get into game development? Uh, through some research of my own, which uh, led me to your LinkedIn page, you have an electrical engineering degree. Uh, did that help you learn how to make video games at Midway and beyond or... If you're talking to someone who wants to get into game dev, are, are, are college degrees mostly trash that gets you into the door and then you learn everything on the job? There's no good answer to this question because ultimately it comes down to the person who has to do the work, right? And yeah. I, it's so like, look at just like my example is not exactly textbook. And so look at it, right? So I was always enraptured with computers i was in a very fortunate situation and i have two amazing parents and they were always supportive of whatever i wanted to do then in the sixth grade they got me a commodore 64 and i had the time and the capacity to teach myself how to program right Mm -hmm. and so i started making games i started just doing this stuff on the side and i went to high school and i stayed a computer nerd and i kept programming and teaching myself stuff and then like okay i'm just going to keep doing computer shit and i went to college and became electrical engineer 
and I had no notion that I was going to make games for a living until like the last semester when I had to start looking for jobs. I actually realized like, wait, somebody has to make these games. Like these don't just appear. <laughs> yeah. I thought they all happened in Japan or something. I'm not quite sure what I thought. Then I realized a bunch of game developers in the States. I applied everywhere. And it's only because like, like the cool thing about like a double E degree or any hard science degree, whether it's math or physics, um, they like, you learn how to solve problems. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because I taught myself to program on my own, I was an expert problem solver and I knew how to program. And so I was ready to do this job kind of out of school. Now that's for me, right? There's other people. Like I think the single best game developer I've ever known in my entire life is Daryl Wisner. And Daryl's the guy who does team GFB radio with me. And I've been working with him for since 2004. I've been working with him going back to Midway and he, uh, you know, he, does not have a like without getting into all the details he does not have this like rich academic history right yeah um self-taught in a lot of ways just kind of started making games like uh, you know high school era and just took a completely different path than i did right and he's still like the very best person i've ever known now if i would have tried his way i would be i'd be homeless right now <laughs> and if he would have tried my way probably the same thing right like the path i took was right for me and the path he took was right for them so take anything I'm about to say about best practices and just probably throw it in the trash because it ultimately comes down to the person doing the work. But yeah. I think my generic advice is I would go to a regular four-year university. Uh, I would not necessarily focus on like a game curriculum. Uh, like I wouldn't – like don't go to a game school. Just go and get a degree-ass degree in something you like, right? Now, if it's art, if you want to be an artist, get a fine arts degree. Right. Uh, if you want to be a designer or maybe what you think you might want to do game design one day, like take a right, become like a writer or in college or whatever, like analyze, like learn how to break things down. Right. Uh, if you want to think you want to be a programmer, just do any hard science degree and learn programming along the way. And then you have two things, right? Like once you have the degree, you have something else you can do because like the other problem with games is everyone thinks they want to start making games until they start making games. And they realize it's really fucking hard too. <laughs> You know, <laughs> yeah. it's not just tightening up the graphics on level three, right? It's it's a hard job just like everything else, and you might not enjoy it. And where if you went to a game school, what else are you going to do with that degree, True. right? But if you got a math degree or a fine arts degree, you'll have a billion other options you can do. Then if you still feel like you're not ready or you didn't pick up enough programming skills or maybe you took a fine arts degree but there wasn't – you don't know Photoshop because it was all pen, pen and paper stuff or whatever, right? Then you can go to like a finishing school – uh, like that offers like a master's program, like something like uh, FIA at University of Central Florida is great. Carnegie Mellon has a great program. SMU has a great program. Um, USC has a great program. You can go to a two-year you know, cl- school there and learn. That's like game dev boot camp and do that, right? Yeah. So I think that's the approach I would take. Um, and also, if you've gone through four years of college and you haven't like made a game on the side, maybe that probably tells you maybe you don't actually want to make games also. Like – uh, there's no reason, like, game development is so easy to get started now. You download Unreal, you download Unreal 4, they're free. Uh, you start tinkering, you start messing around, and either you get the bug or you don't, you know. So your games are going to stink, but at least you know you got the bug. So Is that something that has kind of instructions directly in it when you download Unreal or Game Maker or Unity or something like that? Is that one of those things you got to start going down a whole bunch of Wikipedia pages and Google a lot of things to figure out what you're doing? Or do a lot of those programs already have kind of a, hey, let's start here and we'll teach you how to use this part and this part and this part? Yeah, almost all of them have like some kind of demo level or demo game or whatever. And like, you know, the first thing you should do is like, oh, how do I change that cursor from blue to red? Right. Yeah. And just figure out how to do that. And now you know one thing. And they just start like modifying the demo to do different things and just start monkeying around with it. And uh, that's not like the right way to learn, but it's the right way to find out if you even like doing it, you know? Yeah. No, I got you. You want to learn. There's a billion online resources about like, here's how to script in C sharp for unity or, you know, here's how blueprint works. Or there's a billion things you can just kind of like tutorials you can take that are online. When you're hiring someone, do they need to have made like five or like do you have like a certain number in your head of like you should have worked on this many projects or made this many indie games on your own like is it 
I think with writing, it's always weird because you have to like usually start on your own blog. You you write for sites that pay you either very little or they pay you in quote unquote experience. Um, and then you go from there. With game dev, is that similar where you kind of make your own project at the start, maybe work on a very low key indie project and then move up the rankings? I mean, again, there's no one path to success, yeah. right? But like the, I I think we tend to, we hire, think about it like this. So we'll, we'll hire someone who's never worked on a game before. Like we've certainly done it, right? Um, if you're applying for a job and you've never worked on a game before and you're competing with someone who has a game I can play that they've worked on, right? Yeah. Everything else being equal, you're probably at a disadvantage, right? So it's not that we would or we wouldn't, or there's hard and fast rules around that because the right candidate is the right candidate. If we think they can do the work, they can do the work. But, um, you're competing against people who have probably worked on games or at least mods or something. Right. Gotcha. And, uh, because of that, like it's, it, yeah. So it's not like a rule, but you're really putting yourself at a disadvantage if you haven't worked on anything. Okay. Gotcha. Um, and I have to talk at least a little bit about giant bomb here before we wrap up, because I mean, I, I, I learned about iron galaxy and you from giant bomb. Again, the majority of people is my podcast are, like giant bomb fans i think at this point uh so ubiquitous might be a word it it might be (laughs) um something that i wanted to actually ask you which might be a little bit of an off-the-wall question you did way back when on some stream and this is obscure you did a giant bomb tier chart where you were ranking different personalities from giant bomb yeah that was for child's play that was it and i remember i think drew was s rank and might have been at the top uh vinny was vinny was number one Oh, Vinny was number one. Okay, Drew was close then. Vinny's, know- S- Vinny's S plus. I don't remember the exact rankings, but I know I I know my order hasn't changed. Well, so that. even if your order hasn't changed, I mean, we now have at that point. I'm not even sure if Dan was around. There's Abby. There's Ben. It the staff has changed. It could you do a really quick giant bomb tier chart? Oh boy. Uh oh boy. Oh boy. So Vinny is still as yeah. Vinny is still S plus. Um. I actually haven't thought about this in a long time and I haven't watched enough uh, East stuff to really definitively talk intelligently about Abby. East um, is really good. I had Abby on the podcast last week. She's really great. I know you can't really take my advice for it. Since well, I believe, your chart I, I, list, I, I, but it's not that I don't believe she's great. It's just that, you know, this is all, these are all relative. Like everyone, at giant bomb is great. Mm. If you're asking me for a stack ranking, a tier chart, it's how is the greatness relative to the other people you're ranking? Right. True. Yes. So, uh, I would say st- it's still clearly Vinny is S plus tier. Mm-hmm. I would say uh, Jason, a striker, is probably S minus tier. Probably just a peg oh, below wow. where Drew peaked. Oh man, a peg below. I think uh, A is you know A Jeff is firmly A. Uh, B, you're still in Brad country when you get to B. <laughs> uh, Dan, oh boy, that's a hard one. I'm just gonna go ahead and put. Ben, Abby, Alex. I'm just going to put all of them in C country and then Dan below them. Okay. Everyone else is C and Dan is like somewhere in the D or F tier. <laughs> I think that's fair. I that's think those a, are. That's my definitive chart. Okay. Uh, do you get like recognized at PAX or E3 and other events because of Giant Bomb very often? Like, do you get random people saying like, oh, Dave Lang, I see you on Giant Bomb streams all the time? So this is actually. I, I used to be very uncomfortable talking about this stuff, but um, it's gotten easier over the years. Well, easier is not right. It's less, less, less uncomfortable over the years. So, like, the whole reason the Lang Zone exists is because uh, someone walked up to me and Adam at a PAX forever ago, mm-hmm. and they um, asked us for an autograph. And it was it was Bacon Games from the site. I think it was Bacon. Yeah, it was Bacon Games. Oh, okay. If, if, if you're Alex Panay is the name. Yeah. And I refused to sign his book uh, because I was, I was just, cause like, cause I got, I got, I got, I got briefly really frustrated that like, you know, when people come up to someone at PAX, like Tim Schaefer or whatever, and they ask him for an autograph, it's because they love his games and they love what he's created. And they love what he's brought in this world. You know, if they ask Amy Henning for an autograph, it's because they love her work on Uncharted or whatever. And if you ask me for an autograph, it's because I was an idiot on a giant bomb. <laughs> And I got really uh, kind of emotional about that in the moment. Mm. And then, uh, so Ryan thought that was hilarious. And his punishment was to make the the Memorial Lang Zone 
during their PAX East panel. And so I had to sit in the front and people could come up and ask me for autographs during the panel. And if you were in, the, if you were in there, you were in the quote unquote Lang zone. And so the whole reason the Lang zone exists is because of that, that giant bomb phenomenon of people knowing me because I'm an idiot on giant bomb <laughs> more so than like any of the cool games I've worked on. Yeah. I could see that being weird. I was at that exact same PAX panel. I actually remember being in the presence of the Lang zone that, yeah. It feels like a long time ago. Uh, yeah, since, since that time, I've gotten comfortable with it, and I've embraced it, and I realize, you know, no matter how I'm doing it, if I'm bringing joy into people's lives, that's kind of all that matters. And I'm taking the high road now, so it's high road. I would assume that's changed a bit, too, because, I mean, Iron Galaxy no, expanded. No, it's not people, at all. Yeah. Uh, a little bit, it's come not. on, everyone. People like Killer Instinct. People love Dive Kick. Extinction's going to be You know what big. people like more than all those things? It's a giant bomb. Me being an idiot on giant bomb. <laughs> because that's the thing it's like you know like the it's also just about like the understanding uh like you you know up until very recently if you asked the average gamer who iron galaxy was they would have no idea and over the last couple years that's changed because of like dive kick and killer instinct and extinction or whatever but even if they know who iron galaxy is the average person doesn't know or even if they heard of me they don't know i work at iron that's just not a thing they put together right yeah and so um yeah, I think I need to be at this grind for about 20 more years before it'll be close to like, <laughs> I loved your work on Dive Kick 6, man. It was awesome. Uh, by 2037, this will all come together. This podcast yeah. is the first step. We talked almost entirely about Iron Galaxy. So, you know, maybe we fixed it. This, this is really going to flip the tables. Uh, so uh, I know we, we did talk about Extinction again. Is there anything else that you guys are working on that you can talk about? And maybe most importantly, where can people find your podcast and your Twitter? Yeah, then we got a Steam version of Killer Instinct coming out uh, oh, great. in August, I believe we've said. Oh, wow. Um, I believe that's a date we've set out loud. In uh, or we could break news. That's fine. And if not, then I'm, I'll get a call from Microsoft PR <laughs> tomorrow, and that's fine, too. I love talking to those fine folks over there. Um, the, uh, uh, that's the next thing we have coming out. Uh, and then Extinction, like I said, is Q1 after that. Everything else is kind of like we've gone dark and we're working on some new stuff. So, uh Team GFB Radio is where you can hear the lovely comedy stylings of Dave Lang and Daryl Wisner. Uh, just head over to teamgfbradio.com for archives and links to your favorite subscribe shit there. Uh, like, comment, subscribe. Uh, my <laughs> Twitter is Joseph J. Brony. Uh, don't ask why. And my favorite, uh, uh, What's the, what are the, my little pony is pork chop applesauce. Great. And you also stream too. So you I mean you're on you're on Twitch playing games. You're getting I saw you got a, a chicken dinner the other day. That was that yeah, was an amazing first video. Chicken dinner. I was very hyped. Yeah, uh, that's also Joseph J. Brony on Twitch. All right, great. Well, uh Dave, thank you so much for doing this. Although I did initially learn about you through Giant Bomb, like it's it's been cool from a distance to see Iron Galaxy grow and do cool shit and do dive kick, do now extinction and have these two studios. I, and also, of course, I, I've, I've met Adam boys. I've had him on this podcast before having him join you guys is an awesome move. And I can't wait to see some future trailers and gameplay for extinction and the other stuff you guys do. Yeah. No, I appreciate you trying to put a soothing balm on my otherwise like flaming <laughs> ego. I appreciate that, but no, it was fun that's that's what i'm here for so thanks again and uh thank you everyone for listening hopefully tune back in for the next episode of the 1099